Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Yesterday, we had the trifecta of potentially market-moving events. Maybe the most significant, or at least in hindsight, what looks like the most significant was the elections in the UK with the surprise strength coming from the Labour Party to deny the Conservative Party a majority. And so it it, it looks like uh, May will still uh, maintain the prime ministership, even though the Conservatives do not have a majority in Parliament because they can form a coalition, a minority government with another party, and that's what they will be doing. But obviously her position is weakened and she didn't get the result that she gambled on when she called this election. The reason that the Labour Party did so well was because of the young people, the young voters that overwhelmingly voted for labor, which shouldn't be much of a surprise. After all, they're the ones that are promising the most free stuff. And it's younger people that are the most susceptible uh, to that message, particularly people who, you know, have just graduated from high school or maybe are still in high school. You know, when you're 18 years old, in many cases, you're still in high school. You've never had a job. You still live with your parents. And so uh, you're inclined to vote Uh, for a socialist candidate. And so that's what happened. But, you know, that's one of the reasons that the voting age should be higher. I mean, think about that. In the United States, the voting age is 18. And that was changed by constitutional amendment because it used to be 21. And it was the Vietnam War that caused the voting age to be lowered from 21 uh, to 18. The, The cry was, if you're old enough to fight, you're old enough to vote. And, you know, that's another example of how we lose every war, because I would prefer the voting age stay at 21. In fact, I think we should raise it. I think it should be maybe 25 or maybe even 30, uh, given the changes that have taken place since, uh, you know, the initial voting age of 21 was established, basically, during the birth of the republic. You know, to say that old enough to fight old enough to vote makes as much sense as saying if you're too old to fight, you're too old to vote, right? So if we're going to say that voting should be, should be based on the criteria for fighting in a war, then older people shouldn't be allowed to vote because they're, they're too old to fight. I mean, the one has absolutely nothing to do uh, with the other. The reality is when you're 18, 19, 20, Physically, you're probably, you know, you're, you, you could be a soldier, but mentally, I don't think you're ready for the responsibility of voting. I mean, if you think about it, when the voting age was 21, and let's say it's 1800, right? If you're 21 in the year 1800, chances are you're married and have kids already. I mean, at that age, I mean, if you're 21, you've probably been working since you were 14 or 15, maybe even younger, 
And again, most people didn't go to college. Most people didn't even graduate high school. So by the time they were 21, they had a lot of real-world experience. Uh, and, of course, if you look at life expectancy, uh, how long were people living in, uh, you know, 1800? I mean, generally, if you were, you were 21, you were practically middle-aged. I mean, how many people even made it into their 60s and 70s back, you know, in the early 1800s? Not that many. I mean, people did. But people dying in their 40s, 50s, and 60s was very commonplace. So when you were 21, you had a lot more real-life experience. You had been working. Maybe you were married. You already had a kid. Maybe you owned some property. So you had you know, a much better idea of society, and you could be a more responsible voter. But you take the typical 18-year-old today, the typical 18-year-old still lives with his parents. He hasn't worked a day in his life. I mean, most 18-year-olds now haven't even had a part-time job, you know, thanks to the minimum wage and thanks to, you know, Alan Greenspan and then Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen with interest rates so low, most retired people are now taking the part-time jobs during the summer that their grandkids used to take, but now they can't get them because their grandparents beat them out for the job because, you know, they got more work experience. Uh, so you got people that are 18 years old They've never done anything, yet they're determining the outcome of an election. I mean, why are we letting kids? I mean, when you're 18 years old, you're a kid. I mean, why don't we lower the voting age down to 16? How about 15? How about 10? What? What? Why not five? Right? I mean, I mean, 18. You probably don't know much more at 18 than a 10 year old. I mean, they still don't know. I mean, yes, they've been in school, but what have they learned in school? Especially they're going to a government school. They're learning a bunch of socialist nonsense from their teachers. Of course, they're going to vote for some uh, Bernie Sanders type uh, candidate. I mean, what else do you expect? I mean, there was an old saying that was if you're not a socialist uh, or liberal by the time you're 21, you don't have a heart. And if you're not a conservative by the time you're 28, you don't have a head. I mean, that expression is there for a reason. It's because people generally have to gain some real-world experience before they understand the destructive nature of government. I mean, government is very seductive to the ignorant, right? If you don't have any experience, if you've never actually paid taxes, you don't understand the burden that taxes impose. If you've never run a business, if you've never hired people, you don't understand the problems that government creates. So when we're allowing 18-year-olds to vote, who have no experience in the real world, of course they're going to make these uninformed, ridiculous votes. So the voting age should be older. I think that it should be at an age that at least is the equivalent of you've gotten out of school and you've worked for a while and you have some idea of what you're voting for. You have an idea of what the consequences are of government uh, regulation and government taxes and government spending. So yes, if the voting age was 21 a couple of hundred years ago, when you know people you know didn't even go to high school and they were in the workforce and married yes the voting age today should be much higher 28 30 35 something like that i mean that makes a lot more sense now i know a lot of people are going to be saying oh that's terrible because people need to have uh, their rights well you know voting and having rights are not mutually exclusive i mean look children have rights 10 year olds 15 year olds have rights just because they they can't vote. And of course, there are a lot of people who don't vote. They don't lose their rights just because they don't vote. Look, now 
You know, I'd move to Puerto Rico. I can't vote. I can't vote in the presidential election as living in Puerto Rico. But I still have rights. You know, if you're a convicted felon, my father, he joked, you know, when he ran for president uh, on the Libertarian Party, one of the, his jokes was that if, you know, if he actually won the nomination, he couldn't vote for himself because he was a convicted felon. If you've been convicted as a felon, you don't have the right to vote in an election. That's just the way the law is. But that doesn't mean you lose all of your rights as a citizen. You still have your property rights. You still have freedom of speech, freedom of association. You don't lose all that just because you can't vote. The vote just is your involvement in determining you know, who runs the government. But the most important thing is not that everybody votes. The most important thing is good government. And if you achieve better government with fewer people voting, that's better than having a bad government where everybody votes. I mean, people think that democracy is an ends in and of itself. It's not. It's a means to an ends. What we want is good government. And good government is limited government that protects individual uh, liberty, property, life, right? That's what we want. We don't we just want good government. Some people think we want democracy just for the sake of democracy, and they don't care if we democratically elect socialists. If democracy leads to socialists getting elected, then it's not a good thing. You want to limit democracy so that you don't get a bad outcome. That's what the founding fathers did when they had the voting age at 21. I mean, that's why they had the voting age men, not women, because back then women didn't work. Now, I wouldn't support that today. I wouldn't make that distinction between men and women because women work now. Women, you know, women work as much as men. So there's no reason to limit the suffrage to men. But that made sense a couple of hundred years ago based on what people were trying to achieve. I mean, they also used to have other criteria for voting, like they had property qualifications. You needed to own property. They had literacy tests. They wanted people to be literate before they voted. Also, they had poll taxes where you actually paid a tax to vote because they didn't want people who weren't willing to pay the tax to vote. Hey, if you don't care enough to pay the tax, then we don't want you voting. I mean, they wanted people being informed and making a good decision. But the politicians, of course, always want to lower the voting age because they want the dumbest people possible voting. I and mean, believe me, if politicians could allow little kids Five-year-olds, 10-year-olds to vote? Of course they would want them to vote. I mean, who do you think would win all the little kids, right? All the Democrats, vote for me, free toys, right? Everybody can have ice cream for dinner if you vote for me, right? You, you No more homework, right? Oh, yeah, you got my vote, right? It's easy to get kids to vote for you, right? You just promise them a bunch of nonsense that they like. But, you know, in many cases, the adults are just like kids. The voters are like kids. They're voting for stuff just as dumb as ice cream for dinner and not having to do their homework, right? Maybe adults can see that these things are bad, but the little kids don't know it. But there are a lot of things that are bad that 18-year-olds and 20-year-olds, they don't know are bad. They sound good, right, on the surface. They sound good if you're thinking with your heart. But once you have enough real-world experience to think with your brain, then you realize that they're not good. Anyway, let me you know move forward uh, to the rest of the data that uh, move the markets. But by the way, so the the uh, the weakening of the conservative government in uh, in the UK brought the pound down. I mean, the pound was down about one point six percent today. It really got pounded, and that weakness in the pound that spilled over into strength 
uh, for the dollar against other currencies as well. Now, pretty much all the dollar's gains happened yesterday, last night. During the session today, the dollar gave back some of its gains. Not all of its gains, but it gave back some of its gains. And so the dollar index uh, retook the 97 handle. You know, after making a new six-month low earlier in the week, we got down to about 96.50. We closed out the week at 97.28. But I think the downtrend in the dollar is still entrenched and the dollar is heading lower but it did get some help from weakness in the pound it also got some help yesterday from mario draghi's comments uh about inflation in the eurozone as i said there were rumors that they were going to take down uh, their official inflation forecasts and they did they lowered them down to about 1.5 percent which, you know, is still below their 1.9% goal. Now, why 1.9% is good, but 1.5% is bad. Uh, But the idea is that the ECB needs more inflation. And so they will, uh, you know, keep the QE program around a little longer because inflation is going to be lower. Well, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that the ECB is likely mistaken, either intentionally or you know, they just got it wrong. But I do believe that Eurozone inflation is going to be higher uh, than that number. In fact, it's probably even going to be above their 1.9% maximum that they've set. Because remember, they have to be close to but not at 2%. So I think people who are betting that QE will be here longer in the Eurozone because inflation will be lower, I think are wrong. The other potential dollar moving event was the, uh, the testimony of former FBI Director Comey. And I guess the thought was maybe he would say something, there'd be some kind of a bombshell. And there was no bombshell. And of course, uh, President Trump is claiming vindication. This proves that I didn't do anything wrong. And that was somewhat supportive of the dollar to the extent that traders believe that Trump is supportive of economic growth and supportive of the economy. And to the extent that there is an impeachment cloud or obstruction of justice, it would uh, somehow inhibit his agenda and therefore be bad for the U.S. economy and bad for the dollar. In fact, just before Comey spoke, probably 10 minutes before, somebody came in and sold a tremendous amount of gold. I mean, boom, they just hit the market and gold dropped like a stone uh, about 20 bucks, like right away, you know, just before he even spoke. And then gold basically clawed its way back. And by the end of the day, I mean, it was only down seven or eight bucks. Uh, And then again, this morning, kind of the same thing. Someone came out early in the morning. Gold was down a couple of bucks and they whacked it down again. It went down about $13, $14 at the lows and uh, didn't quite come back. I think I saw it down about seven bucks was about as high as I saw it. And I think it closed the day down uh, about uh, nine bucks or so a price of gold. Gold stocks, though, again, continue to trade much better than they have been. I mentioned that on my last podcast. Even though gold was down, you know, 11 bucks on the day, was down all day, gold stocks were down, but not that much. I mean, they were down a little bit, uh, and they, they basically held in there, and they did that again yesterday. So they're now trading a lot better than they were, and so I do believe that we see a recovery in the price of gold, and I think we will. I mean, we close around 1266, so we're still holding above 
that old 1260 resistance. We didn't have, we never broke above 1300 yet. We got to about 1295, so we still haven't had the breakout. Remember, the real breakout I think will be a close above 1350. That's really the number I'm looking at. Uh, but gold does look like it is going to break out. Hasn't done it yet, but I think it is building momentum. And I think the fact that these uh, gold stocks are trading better is now a good indication at least there's some money moving into these stocks. So I'm not the only one that's thinking that the price of gold may go up. And by the way, I don't think, you know, Trump is out of the woods yet. I don't think these uh, these hearings are over. I think this is going to continue to be a cloud over the Trump administration. The Democrats are not going to give up. Comey said enough so that they think they still have a case. I mean, if you look at the basic facts, I mean, Comey is saying that, look, you know, Donald Trump was dangling my job in front of my face. He's asked me about my job on multiple occasions, even though I told him I wanted to stay on. And he told me that I was doing a good job, yet he kept talking to me about my job, about my keeping my job. And then he invited me out to dinner. And, you know, then, you know, he he had everybody leave the room but me. And he basically said, you know, I want to count on your loyalty. And, you know, I want you I really hope that you end this investigation that you're doing. And all this stuff, obviously, Comey is testifying that in his mind, uh, this was something that he was being ordered to do. It was almost a threat. His job was in the balance. If you cooperate, if you do what I hope that you do, then you can keep your job. And if you don't do what I hope you're going to do, well, then you're going to lose your job. And of course, he did lose his job. He got fired abruptly, which kind of supports his allegation that uh it was a quid pro quo. You want to keep your job, then you'd be a loyal guy and a loyal guy, you know, does the things that I'm hoping that you do. Right. That's his whole case. And it's very possible that that's exactly what happened. But there's no proof that it happened. Is it possible? Is there circumstantial evidence if Comey is being honest? Right. Then, yeah. But I don't think that's enough to impeach a president. In fact, I, I you know, is it even obstruction of justice? You forget the president has the power to pardon anybody, anybody he wants, right? That's not obstruction of justice. If you pardon somebody, you're not obstructing justice. I mean, in a way you are, right? When Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon, Richard Nixon, right? Was that an obstruction of justice? Because after all, Nixon might have been charged with a crime and gone to jail. And so I guess it's an obstruction when you just tell the prosecutors, hey, I'm pardoning the guy. Because if you're going to give him a pardon, what's the point of investigating? What's the point of trying to charge him with something if he just got a pardon? So, I mean, it, Trump could pardon anybody he wants, right? Is that is that obstruction of justice? So if Trump even tells the FBI director, hey, you know, lay off of this investigation, I'd rather you do something else. I, you know, I'd rather you use government resources on something that I think is important. I think this is a waste of time. I think this is a good guy. So, you know, I hope he just, uh, you know, even if he didn't say, I hope, even if he said, look, I think you should do it. It wasn't like they were investigating him. It wasn't that he was, you know, you know, it, it was an investigation of Trump himself. This is a third party, right? So even if he did what Comey is alleging that he did, it still may not be obstruction of justice. He still may have the presidential authority to direct the uh, uh, the FBI in, in a matter he's directing because I mean what if he was going to pardon him what's the point why have an invest why investigate a guy maybe he did something wrong if I'm just going to pardon him what's the point go on do something else so you know there isn't even a, a strong enough case can you make a case is it possible that uh, Comey was trying to influence I mean that Trump was trying to influence Comey of course and that 
you know, he, he lost his job because he wasn't a team player. He wasn't paying, playing ball. He wasn't being loyal. Yeah, that's possible. But I mean, you can't prove it for sure. And even if you can, I still don't know if it's obstruction. So I don't think Trump is going to be impeached. But the issue is not going to go away. The Democrats are not going to drop it. The the, the media is not going to drop it. So people who are thinking, oh, okay, it's all over now, uh, they're wrong. I mean, it's still here. It's still going to be out there. It still means that tax reform, even if it was coming, isn't coming anytime soon. The same thing with Obamacare repeal. All of the, the very reasons that the stock market had such a big rally, none of those reasons are here anymore. So now they have to come up with some new phony reasons to justify this rally, which you know brings me to the stock market, which had a very interesting day today because the, the uh, NASDAQ got clobbered. And not just the NASDAQ, but the big momentum stocks, you know, these FANG stocks. FANG is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. And then there's a few others that are in that category, but they didn't make it into the acronym. But you got a lot of these momentum stocks that just got clobbered today. I mean, clobbered. I mean, some of these stocks, too, made new highs. Like the NASDAQ itself made a new high today before closing down 1.8%. But that was after a big rise. I mean, these stocks got creamed. There was a huge sell-off, almost like a flash crash, about, I don't know, 250 ish or so, 245, 250 Eastern time. These stocks got hammered. I mean, hammered. And they came back quite a bit uh, in the last hour, but they still finished way down. So there were a number of individual uh, tech stocks that made new record highs today that were down 3 4%. And a lot of these stocks that were down 3 or 4%, had they closed the market an hour earlier, they would have been down 7 8%, 9%. I mean, I think, I mean, if you look at Amazon, I think the swing from the high to the low today might have been about 2, you know, 20% of the value of the stock. Let me see, or no, 10% rather. The low, the low, the high on Amazon was 1,012, and then it sold down to 927. So not quite a 10% swing from the high to the low. But that's a pretty big move. And the low was 927, and then it closed at 978. That's down 32 bucks. That's still a 3.26% drop. But look how much it rallied from that interday low. And this this was a lot of stocks. I don't want to go over each one that had these big moves, but they all did that. So somebody came in, you know, with a little over an hour to go and dumped a bunch of these stocks on the market. Now, I don't know, is this the harbinger of something big that's going to happen? Because, you know, the Dow Jones made a new high, closed at a new high today. The Russell 2000, the small caps, closed at a new high. And you had strength in these value stocks, some economically cyclical stocks were strong today. The banks were strong in these small caps. So I don't know, maybe it's just kind of some internal rotation that's going on. We'll see if it's a harbinger of something bigger But what we did get today was more bad economic news that everybody seems to be ignoring, uh, including the Fed. You know, on Wednesday, I didn't mention this when I did the Wednesday podcast, but we got consumer credit out yesterday afternoon. And that was a big, big miss. Right. They were looking for uh, 17 billion dollars in consumer credit for the the month of, uh, of April. Right. Consumer borrowing. And of course, I don't like consumer credit, right? The fact that consumers are borrowing money to consume, I think that's terrible. I think that this is economically destructive when you borrow to consume. You're destroy- You're using up savings for consumption. 
savings should go towards investment. And nobody should buy things that they can't afford. You should not borrow money to buy something. You should borrow money to make an investment, to buy plant and equipment that's going to generate a return. But don't borrow money to buy a consumer good. Save your money. And when you have enough savings, then you buy the consumer good. That's how it's supposed to work. But in today's screwed up economy, you know, we got the cart before the horse. And so we buy things before we can afford to when we pay for it by borrowing money and eating the seed corn. But they were looking for $17 billion in uh, consumer credit growth. And instead, we only got $8.2 billion. That's less than half of what the market was expecting. That's bad news if you're expecting a rebound in second quarter GDP, because 70% of GDP is consumer spending. And where do consumers get a lot of the money they're spending? They borrow it, because they sure as hell don't earn it. And so if consumers are borrowing a lot less, that means they're spending a lot less. And if they're spending a lot less, that means your GDP is going to be down. And so if you're counting on a big boost, that consumer credit number says, we ain't getting it. And that's just April. That's the first month of the second quarter. We still have May and June. And we got more bad economic data that came out. I'd say the most significant of which was the wholesale trade numbers that came out today. This is on inventory. And of course, inventory is a direct component of uh, feeding into GDP. And the consensus was for a 0.3% decline in inventory in April, following a small 0.2% increase in March, which was the last month of the first quarter. Well, they revised March to only up 0.1. Now that won't affect Q2 GDP. It should come out of, you know, a revision for Q1. But the down number for Q2, instead of being 0.3, was 0.5%. So we were supposed to drop 0.3 from up 0.2. Instead, we dropped 0.5 from an even lower level of up 0.1. So a much worse number. I mean, literally, it's double, right? Because if you add the, uh, the, the revision from the prior month, it was actually double what they were expecting. So this is a weak number, and this is going to be a subtraction from Q second quarter GDP. Now, I guess the Atlanta Fed recognized that because they did come out and revise down their second quarter estimate from 3.4% to 3%. They were at about 4.2 a couple of weeks ago, so they've had a couple of uh, successive reductions and now they're down to 3%. But they're still pie in the sky with this 3%. I mean, the New York Fed, they've got a GDP now cast out there too. They're a little bit more realistic. They're a 2.3. But they were a 2.3 last week as well. So they didn't knock anything off their forecast as a result of the weaker than expected uh, numbers that we got today. So I don't know. I would have assumed that they would have reduced it a little bit. But at least they're closer to reality than uh, the Atlanta Fed. But I think as we continue to get more of this bad data, uh, these numbers are going to come down below 2% uh, by both the Atlanta and the New York Fed. In fact, part of the problem with the buildup in inventories is the automobile inventory. This is a big, big problem. I've been talking about that. Uh, the, The cars are piling up 
in the showrooms, on the lots. They're not being sold. Meanwhile, used car prices are falling. This is a big problem for auto loans, auto credit, leases. And, you know, I finally read a big article. I put it up, I think, on my Facebook page. I've been talking about this on my podcast, about the commercial real estate, about the problems building in that commercial real estate bubble, because commercial real estate prices got bid through the roof. The cap rates went through the floor because interest rates were so low. People were paying ridiculous prices for any income-producing commercial property. What's the problem now? Not only are interest rates rising, making that property less valuable, but the income is falling because so many of the tenants are going out of business. I mean, you've got more retailers now going out of business. You've got more stores closing than in the 2009, the year of the Great Recession, the financial crisis. The retailing space is doing worse now than it was then. And it is just getting started. And of course, the other problem too for the retailers or this commercial space is what if you borrowed money to buy your commercial real estate? You bought it on leverage and you've got a loan against your property. And so you collect rent from your tenant and then you pay interest to the bank who you borrowed the money. Now you have an adjustable rate. All these commercial loans are very short term. I mean, some of them are five years and then they reset. They're not 30 year fixed rate, you know, like a FHA mortgage. So let's say, you know, I'm financing my shopping center and I'm paying, you know, low interest to the bank and I'm collecting my rents for my tenants. Now, all of a sudden, interest rates are going up. So my payments on my loans are going up. But now some of my tenants aren't paying me anymore. They've gone out of business. So my cost to service my debt is going up and I'm getting less money on my rent. Maybe I can't even afford to make the payments. So now I'm sending in my keys to my mall or whatever, my shopping center. So this is going to be a double whammy, a perfect storm for the real estate market. All the air is coming out of these bubbles, the the commercial real estate, the automobile bubble. There's all this evidence that the economy is weakening. The bond market obviously can sense this. I mean, look at the yield on bonds. I mean, the yield on bonds keeps falling. Bond prices keep rising. You know, we've surrendered all the Trump gains in yield that people when people thought there was going to be this big recovery, this big expansion. Yet the stock market is still pretty much right near the highs. Right. So you've got this dichotomy. But to me, the stock market probably doesn't care what happens. Right. Because the stock market right now, as far as they're concerned, it's Goldilocks. Doesn't matter what happens, right? If the economy is strong, well, then they're going to get the earnings, right? They're going to have the earnings growth. And even if Trump can get his agenda through, they're going to get tax cuts. So best case scenario, we get a strong economy, we get tax cuts, earnings growth, great for stocks. Alternative, the economy goes into recession, right? And we get rate cuts. We get QE4. So either we're going to get earnings or we're going to get cheap money. So the markets think no matter what happens, they're golden. They make money either way. So you can't maybe draw any conclusions from what the stock market is doing because it doesn't matter. But the bond market, the bond market likes a weak economy. The bond market doesn't want a strong economy, right? So the bond market is the more reliable indicator of whether or not investors are bullish or bearish. And the bond story is that this economy is weak because they don't expect the Fed to continue to hike rates, even if they hike rates next week. And they think the economy is going to wind down into recession. And of course, bond investors aren't thinking there's going to be inflation because these Keynesians, these guys that do these models, they think inflation is a function of growth. 
And so if they don't think there's going to be strong growth, they don't think there's going to be inflation. And so they're not demanding an inflation premium on their bonds. So the bond market is really telling you that this economy is going to be weak. But one thing these bond investors don't understand is ultimately they better be careful what they wish for, because a weak economy that is fought with money printing that results in big deficits and more monetization, more QE, in the end, that is the worst thing that a bond investor can have because it means that there's going to be massive inflation. It means the value of your bonds is going to collapse because the value of the money that the bonds are priced in is going to collapse. So ultimately, the bond market has it wrong. But in the short run, right, since they think a weak economy is good for bonds, and since the stock market doesn't care, weak economy, strong economy, they think they can't lose. It's the bonds that are really telling the story. The dollar is telling the story. The dollar hitting six-month lows, even though it's bounced. Gold is going up. All the economic evidence is there. It's supporting what I've been saying. It's just a question of time. And it's not very much more time before you start to see much bigger moves in the markets and eventually some type of capitulation by the Fed. The Fed is going to have to acknowledge at some point that the economy is not as strong as they thought. They just need to come up with an excuse to save face.